Hello and welcome to Walk in the Shadowlands podcast. Let me be your guide as we take a walk into the shadowy realms of the unexplained, the paranormal, of things that go bump in the night and haunt your dreams. Your host? I'm Marianne. And I would like to welcome you to our podcast. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, today, whatever time it is, wherever you are living in this beautiful world of ours. So sit back, relax, and let me be your guide as we walk into the Shadowlands together and discover what awaits us there. In November 2004, 90 miles southwest off the coast of Mexico, near Baja, California, in the USA, the USS Nimitz Carrier Strike Group was conducting two weeks of routine training and aerial defense exercises when unexplained events occurred that forever have altered the lives of the men and women on board these ships who were witness to these episodes. What began as a routine naval training exercise ended up as one of the world's best documented UFO sightings in the 21st century. Witnesses included very highly trained military personnel, amongst them very experienced radar operators and fighter pilots. These were men who were in charge of the world's then most sophisticated and advanced flight and sensor technology that existed in the world at that time. A video of part of this incident was leaked to the world and has been the subject of intense speculation since. Are you ready to walk with me into this part of the Shadowlands and see what we can discover about this event, or rather, series of events? Good. Then let's begin. Over a period of a week, a group of unknown tic-tac-shaped objects, including one 45-foot long, that played cat and mouse with the USS Navy. Reportedly, over this period of time over the week, more than 100 of these objects were observed. These objects also appeared at an altitude of higher than 80,000 feet, with some suddenly dropping to 20,000 feet. 80,000 feet is much higher than commercial or even military planes generally fly. This all began on November 10, 2004, in an area of sea 90 miles southwest of San Diego, California, when the USS Princeton began tracking strange objects on the Aegis radar systems, which they called AAVs, short for Anomalous Aerial Vehicles. Each ship in this exercise had specific tasks that they were commissioned for. The main role of the Princeton was to see to the air defence of the entire strike group. Senior Chief Kevin Day was the anti-air warfare coordinator aboard the Princeton. He describes his role as this, quote, My job was to man the radars and ID everything that flew in the skies, and I also had a position called Anti-Air Warfare Coordinator, where if we ever had to go to war, I was the guy that was going to launch the missiles and kill shit. 
In addition to that, I was the air intercept controller. When the Super Hornet takes off from the carrier, I'm the guy who takes control and takes them to the fight and gets them home safe. End quote. He was also an expert on the Aegis radar system that the Princeton used. This was a man who was well experienced and knew precisely what he was doing and what he was observing on the system. The spy won. His attention was drawn to some anomalous readings, some quote, weird tracks, end quote, that were appearing on the Spy One radar screen, appearing in groups of five to ten at a time. He said they were closely spaced to each other at about 28,000 feet. He quickly ruled these out as commercial airplanes because they weren't on the commercial flight paths, but he wasn't overly concerned about them at this stage. They didn't appear hostile. But over a course of three to four days, these tracks continued to appear on radar, causing Kevin Day to become concerned about the safety of his pilots in the air and of the possible air threat to the strike group. The men involved were unable to identify these objects, which was causing some frustration to them all. Due to their concern, they recalibrated all their systems, thinking it might be a systems malfunction, which is a fair enough supposition. However, when the systems were finished being recalibrated, they merely showed the objects off in sharper detail, using the most advanced systems in the world at that time, as Kevin Day says. Quote, we failed entirely to identify any of these objects. End quote. Finally, on November the 14th, Kevin Day received the order from the commander to intercept the objects. Two Hornet pilots received the order to stop their training mission and deploy to the new coordinates for a real-world task. And Kevin sent the BRA coordinates, BRA standing for bearing, range and altitude. He also said, quote, As soon as he got to the merge point, referring to the pilot, the object dropped 20,000 feet down to 50,000 feet above the water in 0.78 seconds, end quote. A merge position is where two objects on the radar are in the same position and same coordinates and look like one object. Now, when the pilots first arrived at the scene, they didn't see the objects, but noticed a disturbance in the water below them. Then they spotted one of the objects flying about 50 feet above the disturbance in the water. Commander Fravor, commanding officer of Strike Fighter Squadron 41, who was lead pilot with more than 16 years of flying experience, described the object as 40 foot long, shaped like a tic-tac candy with no obvious means of propulsion. He also said that the movements this object made were very swift and erratic. Similar, he said, quote, to if you threw a ping-pong ball against the wall, end quote. However, the object reacted immediately to the presence of the F-18s and took off according to one description like a bullet fired from a gun. Another pilot dispatched after Commander Fravor landed was able to capture one of the objects on the now famous Tic Tac video from his plane. 
while this incident was known about pretty widely in the US naval circles, it was not so widely known by the general public. But that all altered after an article was written about it in the New York Times, along with an official Air Force video of the object taken from the fighter mentioned, showing the object on their screen and then taking off at tremendous speed. Quoting from the New York Times article, the operator said the Princeton had been tracking mysterious aircraft. The objects appeared suddenly at 80,000 feet and then hurled towards the sea, eventually stopping at 20,000 feet and hovering. Then they either dropped out of radar range or shot straight back up. The video of the object went viral, as you can imagine, and was spread all over the net, all over the news outlets. It was the subject of doubtless Countless conversations amongst those who follow UFOs and the reporting of these ships. Of course, since then, we've had the release of others, notably the Gimbal incident. And most recently, in late September this year, 2019, of the US forces formally acknowledging that these UFOs are very real indeed. Of course, they don't say anything other than they are real. Nothing about the intelligent beings that have to operate or indeed to have created these craft. These next few episodes of the podcast are all about eyewitness accounts of these objects from men that were actually serving on board the ships at the time of the incidents occurring. In the official report retrieved under the Freedom of Information Act in the USA, the executive summary of these events, a copy of which is available from this episode's page on the podcast website, www.walkingtheshadowlands.com. It has these key assessments. The anomalous aerial vehicle was no known aircraft or air vehicle currently in the inventory of United States or any foreign nation. The anomalous aerial view exhibited advanced low observable characteristics at multiple radar bands rendering US radar based engagement capabilities ineffective. The anomalous aerial vehicle exhibited advanced aerodynamic performance with no visible control services and no visible means to generate lift. The anomalous aerial vehicle exhibited advanced propulsion capabilities by demonstrating the ability to remain stationary, with little to no variation in altitude transitioning to horizontal and or vertical velocities far greater than any non-aerial vehicle with little to no visible signature. The anomalous aerial vehicle possibly demonstrated the ability to cloak or to become invisible to the human eye or human observation. The anomalous aerial vehicle possibly demonstrated a highly advanced capability to operate undersea completely undetectable by our most advanced sensors. Pretty mind-blowing really, isn't it?
I'm very fortunate to have as my guests two gentlemen, one Patrick Hughes, who was on the USS Nimitz, and one Gary Voorhe, who was on the USS Princeton at the time of these incidents. These are their recollections and thoughts about what happened and their parts in them. And finally, their thoughts about them now, given the hindsight of time. To begin with, I'm just going to go over the actual experiences with the gentlemen themselves. Then once both have shared their experiences, we'll discuss the conclusions that both of them have come up with, with the vision of hindsight and years of thinking and pondering over these experiences. Firstly though, I'd like to welcome my guest Gary Voorhee. Gary is a former third class petty officer and fire controlman. He worked on the Aegis computer system on a CG-59 guided missile cruiser, the USS Princeton. He was in charge of the CEC, Cooperative Engagement Capability System, data recording and maintaining and operating all the mainframes that ran the system. My guest, Gary Voorhe. First of all, Thank you very much, Gary, for coming and talking to us for this episode. I'm really grateful to you for your time, since I know how very busy you've been, especially since the video came out with both your young family and work, and everyone's demands on your time, mine included. Yeah, I'm, I'm blue collar, so I mean, it's just how it is. You know, you got work, family, stuff like that, so I just kind of have to squeeze these in wherever I can. Yeah, I totally get that. So I guess we'll just start at the beginning. Back in 2004, uh, I was a fire controlman um, with on an Aegis cruiser, uh, the CG-59, which was the USS Princeton. We were uh, a flight guard and aircraft controller for the Nimitz Battle Group. We were doing flight guard and uh, air control for the Nimitz at the time, and we were basically doing... Um, training missions uh we were uh testing out new systems and uh uh we we had a, a new baseline of aegis so we had uh the, the latest and greatest of the aegis systems and uh we were testing all those new systems out and then we also had ec which was a new system um cc was uh it was was kind of an amazing breakthrough with the battle group because it, it allowed us primary its primary duty was to be able to allow us it would allow us to basically be able to fire our salvo with other people's sensor data so like say if uh one of the other ships in the group had a good, a good lock on something but we couldn't actually see it CEC would allow us to shoot our missiles at their target. Wow. So it, it basically shares all the sensor data, making a three-dimensional picture of the entire battle group's airspace. Oh, that's fascinating. You, you don't get like, a, it's not like in Star Wars where you can see the picture. Right. You know, it's just the data is there and we can use the data. And it's not a, you know, a lot of people in their head that there's you know console in the middle and a three-dimensional picture coming up and we can see the uh you know the all the ufos and stuff like that but no it's it's a flat screen and we could just access that information as you need it <laughs> uh so i was talking about how uh the the day of uh the first the first you know hint that there was something even going on we didn't really take it serious and we uh you know i woke up that day i was late or I had to, 
I had a late watch. I woke up early and <laughs> wasn't able to go back to sleep. So went up to uh, combat to take a look at these uh, these these this clutter and these uh, these ghost tracks as they as they were calling them because they didn't believe that they were real because of how slow they were flying and um, I'd uh, you know I had looked at the tracks and you know I'd seen clutter before and. Yeah, to me, they looked like sharp tracks, like uh, they were def- well-defined. Right. They rather, were clutter kind of, like, uh, instead of having just a nice, well-defined shape to it, it'll, you know, you'll see little splotches, kind of like when, you're, when, you, when you see that tearing on your digital TVs, where uh, you see the picture and it kind of tears across. Well, that little tear would look like, a, would look like radar clutter. <laughs> oh, right. Um, but now think of that as green clutter, though. That's the, like the kind of shape and size of the clutter. Um, the spy radar is powerful enough to be able to track the uh, the crests of waves if it's too if it's really choppy out. So a lot of times that's the type of stuff that will get will make clutter. Right. But it really wasn't. It was pretty clear. I mean, we really didn't have. I mean, it was. I think it was like five foot seas, if that. It was like super calm out. So. Uh, you know, I didn't really think we were we were we were tracking white caps, which is what we call the the breaking of the waves. Um, so, uh, in order to try to clear up the clutter and the ghost tracks, uh, we took the systems down as soon as we got captain's permission to take them down, and uh, they recalibrated everything, and then we brought them back up, and lo and behold. You know, we some of the clutter that was there was gone, but the tracks were there, clear as day. You know, so at that point we knew that they were solid tracks, but we didn't know what they were. Mm. There's a lot of possibilities of what they could be. You know, we knew they weren't any type of commercial airline or anything like that because they weren't using any type of radio communication to let us know who they were. Uh, they weren't using a system called IFF, uh, what we call identification friend or foe. It's a system that commercial airlines and military airlines of most modern nations use to identify themselves. It's basically uh, just a signal that pulses off these aircraft that will tell you the aircraft name, who they're who they're affiliated with, and whatever their their tail number is. Oh. You know, so uh, it's it's a way so you don't get shot down. Right. <laughs> so. But uh, all commercial airlines have IFF. All American military have uh, airplanes have IFF. Uh, most modern countries do. It's uh, you know it's something that we're just used to seeing it just pop up. And with IFF, when we're tracking the the object, once IFF kicks in, it'll automatically label that object. Right. It'll say you know commercial airliner, or it'll say COM one, or you know COM two. So commercial. You know, they'll just label it a commercial airline. So we'll know exactly what it is. Now, see, these things were going like 100 knots, which is nothing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, I mean, most airplanes have to get up to 200 miles an hour before they even get off the ground. Oh, that's so, interesting. You know, so, I mean, these things are basically just kind of whimsically, kind of kind of just floating in, in a southern path, just really kind of minding their own business on the edge of, you know, the area that where we were working our our uh our mission in and uh they didn't seem hostile or anything they weren't coming at our ships or anything like that they weren't you know in- interrogating us or anything like that they were just there 
they would see them. They'd 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 float into a southerly route, and sometimes they disappear. Sometimes they reappear, and you know, for most of the time, for over the week, we were we were tracking between three and ten of them at a time. So, like when you when you see like the episode of uh, Unidentified where me and Kevin were on, and uh, he's like, they were raining from the sky. You know, he's he's talking about like he was talking about the whole week. Mm. Like he was just all week they're just coming, you know, coming and going, just raining UFOs. You know, that, that's how he meant that, and and they they just they love that soundbite, man. They played that thing so much. Yeah, you know, so it makes it sound like there was hundreds of UFOs just coming from the sky. But he was just very yeah. excited about it, and you know, I remember we had to go back and uh, in a lot of interviews that we've done together, he's had to explain that. So that's one of those things that a lot of people. I'm just trying to try to hit the points of the the questions I commonly get too. No, this is really awesome, Gary. Thanks. All right. And then, uh, so at this point, we know the tracks are very slow. We knew that they were real, solid tracks. And so we just kept tracking them for, I mean, and this is this, and then, you know, montage for like the next week is just, you know, me smoking, drinking coffee, standing watch, working out, checking combat mm -hmm. you know and then at some point it dawns on me that i have the relative bearing of these things and with you know we're not so far away that if they're at least got lights i should be able to see them through the big eyes oh. yeah so i'm, I'm kind of hoping that maybe like it's a dirigible or something i can see like a tail light or you know i can you know most commercial aircraft most aircraft in general have some type of lighting so right so can you please explain for us non-military people what the big eyes actually are? All right. So big eyes, they are a, uh, this is a link uh, that is pulled off of the, uh, of Google, Google just real quick that will show you what the big eyes look like. So, I mean, these are, Oh, wow. They are big yeah, eyes. yeah. When we say big eyes, we're not kidding. I mean, they are, basically a massive set of binoculars that are permanently fixed to the bridge right <laughs> i mean these things are huge they are big. And, and so you can see almost 30 miles with these things on a if it's a nice clear day or a clear night wow, 30 miles so now i i was able to actually look uh so basically what i would do is i'd go to combat and i'd look at the radar screen and if we had the tracks i would the relative bearing, meaning what direction and elevation that I should be looking at. Right. So then when I get up to the bridge wing, I'm kind of, you know, I'm going to be looking at that relative area where it should be. Right. You know, so if we're in a good spot and I think we're close enough, I used to go up to the bridge wing and I'd look at them. Now, when I when I would see them, you got to remember that these were still very far away, but they were they were they were luminous. Mm. So you know, I could see a white fuzzy dot where there sh it should be via the relative bearing so i thought that was you know that's kind of weird i wonder I wonder what the hell this thing is um and so and at night you could really see them mm. yeah i mean and you know but then they disappear and then they'd come back and you know so so it was it was pretty pretty amazing you know and you know there wasn't anything crazy weird going on yet just you know basically just these lights in the sky at this point so Still getting a little excited about it. I actually made sure that the data recording wasn't just like because normally on these like little training missions, data recording is not really that important. Right. So you're just you're just flipping the tapes. You're not even changing them. <laughs> so when this started to happen, I started making sure it was a fresh tape 
every single time. Like you can record front and back on these tapes, but record the front, record the back, and then fresh tape. Record the front, and you do what you do. You can do up to four at a time, and it just goes from one tape to the next. Mm-hmm. So I just always made sure there was a fresh tape in that loop. And so those tapes were always going for the entire seven days. That's smart thinking. Now that records that records all the spy stuff. That records all the combat information center. Your, your um, any it records of uh, anything to go through the ages system period. Right. Um, and then CC has its own its own kind of like system. It's an enclosed system and it records all its own system stuff. Cause it's almost like, um, well, it's, it, it just, we, we, I could just say that it, it, it doesn't need tapes. Mm. And that's it. Everything else about it, about that aspect of it, I'm pretty sure it's still classified. So, right. um, but it, it doesn't need tapes. So I'm not recording on that stuff, but there is data being recorded somewhere. And that's that's my roundabout way of saying that there is data from it, <laughs> so it's not a loss. Um, uh, so a lot of this data, a lot of the talkback chats and stuff like that, are being recorded on other machinery in the computer room. Uh, you know, uh, we have uh, data recording going on on pretty much every system on the ship, so everything is being recorded right. at all times. And so it was just kind of like a hunch, you know, kind of like that that little that little scratch in the back of your head, like maybe I should be recording all this just in case. Right. And uh, you know, it, well, you know, who knows what they were? For all I know, it could have been friggin' enemy aircraft just chilling on the chilling on the edge of our battle group. Um, generally, we you know you can't really see past the horizon, which is two hundred fifty six nautical miles. So that's kind of the limit of your, 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 where you can, you can see. Right. Um, I mean, sometimes you get, you know, radar returns over it cause it bounces off the atmosphere, but generally you don't <laughs> kind of like skip when you're doing uh, ham radios. Right. Yeah. So it's similar to that. Um, and then, uh, so all of a sudden, like I said, montage, it's the same thing for days and days and days. And at one point, like at the fifth or sixth day, I'm like, why haven't we gone and taken a look at what these things are? Why are not we are not interrogating this stuff? What is going on? And I was getting frustrated, you know, because I'm, I'm nobody, really. I mean, I'm taking care of important systems, you know, you know, you know mm-hmm. however many million dollar weapon system or billion dollar weapon system but you know other than that i'm not that important <laughs> i don't make any decisions or anything you know i mean i'm just like wondering what these because all the upper chain of command we haven't heard anything from them no explanations no meetings no briefings about it it's interesting and it's almost like you know, it's almost like they were just kind of trying to pretend like it just wasn't happening interesting but i think that there was stuff going on in the background sure personally i think i have no proof of exactly what happened because like i said i was low rank i don't you know i'm just giving the general feeling of like what the junior enlisted were feeling at the time right you know even kevin being you know he you know he was he was a senior chief which is i mean there's only one enlisted rank or two higher and there's only one command master chief so (laughs) yeah so there's really not much higher than a senior chief enlisted wise so and he still didn't you know they were really weren't talking to him very much either so 
uh, I, you know, I remember uh, getting dragged down to uh, to uh, one of our secure spaces and started and uh, watching the video of the intercept. I'm like, finally, oh my god, you know. I said, oh, I'm watching this thing, and you know, at first they're just floating there, and then all of a sudden they're just matching moves. They're moving right angles. They're moving from point to point at constant speeds rather than ramping up. And and you know, because like any any type of vehicle that you use, airplane, car, boat, truck, you know, planes, trains, automobiles, they all have a certain uh, ramp up to get to a speed. You know, you can't just go from one to 100 in the same instant. Right. You know, you have to, you have to, we, every vehicle we have on this earth goes one, two, three, all the way up to 100. I mean, we can get there fast in some vehicles, but not like this. Right. This was so fast that it could move from one point to another. It would register in your brain, it moved but you wouldn't realize how fast it was or that it actually even moved. It would take you a second to realize it was, it had moved. Wow. But then you would understand, yes, it did move and it was at this type of speed, but then you're just like, wow. You know, cause there was no ramp up in the speed. It was just from point A to point B one speed and that's it. Sometimes super fast, sometimes super slow. It didn't really matter. It just seemed like uh, inertia really wasn't a thing for mm -hmm. it. Cause like, you know some of the some of the maneuvers that it was doing at right angles and stuff like yeah oh the the, the way that it moved it was just miraculous uh, i mean the level of technology uh you know i got very excited because like you know a lot of a lot of the other you know we had you know you had all kinds of various reactions to it um and but there was only so many people that could see the video i mean you just had to be in the right place at the right time right. or already knew it was going to happen or you know and then of course you had to have a top secret clearance Right. You know, so I mean, but it was kind of like everybody with a top secret clearance was on a computer somewhere watching it. <laughs> so, so was this live while it was actually happening? I was under the impression at the time it was live, but now coming back and talking with other people, I have a feeling that it had happened previously that day. Right. But it was within this within hours of it happening. There you were watching the video with all the crew. What sort of impressions were you hearing from from the people standing around you? Um, all the people that got to see the video were either really, really quiet, or you, know, you got to remember this is a lot of information to process. And right. anybody that doesn't have a physics or engineering background, they're they're just looking at this like, how is this even possible? Yeah. You know, they don't they don't understand that it's technically not breaking the laws of physics but it is building upon a new set wow interesting basically you know because there's a lot of wild theories and you know especially in quantum mechanics and and uh you know in mm. you know theoretical science there's a lot of you know stuff that even you know i won't touch but people are like yeah it's mathematically possible look and i go yeah it's mathematically possible to do go back in time but you don't see too many people doing that yet you know so uh <laughs> so like i said before i'm a skeptical believer right. i i think that uh i I, st I keep it to the nuts and bolts of things um mm -hmm. the ones things that kind of concern me about these objects even though you know we couldn't identify them they still to this day remain unidentified right matter of fact the u.s navy just came out this last week and basically made us the most credible witnesses in history because they 
basically said yes these are real unidentified aircraft from the u.s navy you know so it was uh that was pretty amazing and a bit vindicating yes. you know it's not just a it's not just a it's not just a uh a, a drunken sea story <laughs> anymore it's a <laughs> yeah yeah exactly it must have felt very vindicating for you guys to know that because you knew the reality of what you saw, but having it officially acknowledged is another thing entirely. Now, see, the thing is, is, you know, I kind of feel like I felt the gravity of it a lot faster because I understood the physics behind what they were trying, they were doing. And I didn't, you know, I'm not not saying I understand how it worked. I'm just saying I'm looking at this. I know physics. Right. I know engineering. I know we don't have anything that can do that. Right. <laughs> I know I I know the theories of you know of uh, you know uh, gravitational propulsion and and when ion drives and you know all these you know at that time you got to remember this is back in two thousand four right. we hadn't even developed an ion drive then it was still just a concept you know and even that is like child's play compared to the level of engineering and physics that it would take to build these crafts Mm -hmm. but in the same respect a anything that had that kind of level of tech i don't believe that they would be seen unless they wanted us to see them which kind of lends me to kind of figure out why was this so sloppy Mm -hmm. you know why was it you know why were they you know why why were they so in our face you know i mean because they had to have known we were tracking them mm-hmm. you know i mean they they are they demonstrated later on during the intercept that uh this is this is information that i got from kevin day um during the intercept at one point it one of one of the tic tacs disappeared and actually arrived at what's called the cap point right now the cap the cap point is basically where all the planes would converge back, like say, return to the cap. So this would be where they would all go back to wait to be assigned another target or to to come back and regroup. It's like a regroup spot. Right. Right. Now it's top secret. Only the people that that are doing the flight control and the pilots are going to know this. And it's only going to be, it's going to be over through encrypted communications that they get these things. So, And the, the level of secrecy about the cat point is very, very, it's a very high level of secrecy. So for these objects to know exactly that position in a three-dimensional space, exactly where the cat point was, is demonstrating the fact that either A, they already knew the entire game plan, mm-hmm. or B, they have the ability to actually, you know, monitor our communications without having to worry about encryption yeah yeah absolutely we're going to start today with my conversation with patrick hughes Patrick was a former petty officer aboard the USS Nimitz in the role of an aviation tech, VAW-117. Here's Patrick's experience. Okay, firstly, thanks again for joining us today. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to share with myself and my listening audience the things that you witnessed during this episode of the USS Nimitz and the Tic Tac video. 
it's pretty famous throughout the world now, but there are still many, many people, particularly in my part of the world, who may not or may only have a little bit of knowledge about it. So to hear from people who were actually present during the events and were part of the experiences, that's a really huge thing to me. So perhaps, Patrick, we could start like this. Maybe you could tell us what your role was during these encounters and then lead us into the instance. I won't talk too much. I'll just ask the odd question every now and then and I'll just let you share your story with us all. Um, yeah, um, I joined the Navy in 2000. I got out in 2000, just before 2011, so I was in just under 11 years. Um, in 2004, I was stationed with VAW 117, the Wallbangers. We were based out of California, a uh, place called Point Magoo, which is about an hour north of L.A. Um, and in the fall of 2004, we were... Um, doing basically workups, training cycle, preparing for deployment in 2005 on the Nimitz with the Nimitz Strike Group, uh, encompassed us, the Princeton, and a few other ships. Um, at the time, I was a second-class petty officer. Um, I had actually just made second class. I'd just gotten promoted, essentially. Um, but I was responsible. Uh, I worked on the E2C Hawkeye. Uh, it's a small-looking airplane with a UFO looking object sitting on the top of it, which is actually the radar. Um, and I was responsible for the radar, the communications, navigations, um, data links, some other stuff that's in there, some classified stuff, you know, all the fun stuff. So um, it was a plane that kept us pretty busy. Right. And in 2000, like I said, when the uh, Nimitz stuff happened, um, I didn't know about a lot of it till well after the events when I actually got in touch with Gary Voorhees and Kevin Day and uh, the other guys. I didn't know the extent of the story. Um, I thought it was an isolated, essentially one or two flight event that we had with some of the pilots, but they'd actually been tracking the objects um, for the whole almost a week, give or take. No, um, Kevin Kevin Day, who's probably got the uh, most time with with the event, so to speak, um, has said it's just about just about a week. Mm. Um, but we were operating off of off of Southern California, about ninety miles or so. But we we're actually more towards Mexico um, than we were towards California. Um, but specifically, um, the Hawkeye, which is a radar plane, was up there. Uh, a friend of mine who, who, in the Nimitz Encounters documentary that Dave Beatty did, uh, is referred to as Roger, was actually airborne on that flight. Um, the same time as Commander Fravers' intercept. Um, Commander Fravers been on the news. He was one of the first people to go public about this. Um, and he actually visibly saw the object, um, but the Tic Tac actually formed up very briefly with the Hawkeye right. uh, and took off. Um, so I've spoken with Roger and a couple of the other people who choose to remain anonymous in that airplane. Um, so I know most of their stories, and it was very unnerving for them to have something like that just pop up next to the airplane. and 
take off just as quick. Yeah. So when that airplane had returned, um, we do a bunch of normal stuff. When that plane hits a deck, um, we check it, make sure it hasn't broken. You know, nothing fell off. Um, all our screws are still there. Um, we also take, we have some classified hard drives that are in the airplane. Um, they, they run the airplane, but they also um, have the capability to record a whole mess of information from the airplane during the flight. Right. From the radar to to the sensor, CEC, ESM, a whole bunch of initials that I can uh, confuse everybody with. Um, but because of what we were doing, we, we had been recording a lot of flights, and I knew that flight was recording. Um, it didn't make any difference till well after the fact why I why I remember that they're recording. Um, but when I got back, I, I take those classified hard drives out, go back inside the skin of the ship to our little workspace. Uh, we put them in our safe, and within 15, 20 minutes um, of the plane returning and me getting back down, my commanding officer comes knocking at the door who normally doesn't wander over to our part of the ship. If he wants to talk to us, he says, come talk to me, and we go to him. Right. Uh, having him over there was unique enough, but with him were uh, two uniformed Air Force officers who were not on the ship before that I, to the best of my recollection, and I can explain why I have a pretty good idea. They weren't there in a minute, so if I don't get back to it, remind me. I will. Um, but he basically knocks on our door with those two uniformed Air Force officers and says, I need all the, uh, we call them bricks because they're actually quite heavy. Right. Um, but basically it's a big case with a hard drive inside of it. But he asked the bricks out of the safe from that flight. And it's not normal for them to do that. Normally we know ahead of time if somebody's coming to get them. Um, so I, I take them out. I go to sign them out because we have a log book that tracks them all. And he's like, don't worry about it. Basically, give them to me. Oh. So he overrode protocol? It, yes and no. Um, he overrode like standard procedure. Right. But being the commanding officer, every piece of classified material in that command belonged to him anyways. Right, right. So it's kind of like stealing from yourself. Right. Um. So, yeah, it was different from normal protocol, but it wasn't – he wasn't, like, breaking any laws or anything. Right. Um, which I know has confused some people when I tell that part of the story. Um, so he takes those. Um, he takes his two little Air Force friends that I'd never seen, and that's the last I ever saw those bricks. We never got them back. Um, they never told us more of the story. Um, but Roger, who was on that flight – shortly after our skipper there uh, came to take everything, finally returned from debrief, you know, because they do talking about stuff, what happened and what they could have done better. Right. And starts to vaguely clue us into the fact that something happened. Um, but because he actually signed an NDA and the air crew that he was with actually signed NDAs, that's why they're not saying anything. And he really couldn't tell us what was happening. Um, that was the last we discussed it for a long time because we were just told not to talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, they had the, the ship had some fun with the story. Um, 
the ship has a plan of the day, which is almost like a little daily newspaper with a whole bunch of list of events. And it's usually got a little cartoon in it. So it was a, a UFO themed car, uh, themed cartoon the next day. Right. Um, the movie channels on the ship happened to be playing, you know, men in black, um, some other, basically they were poking fun at all the officers who, who saw it. Um, right. So, but the reason, uh, back to the two Air Force officers, the reason I'm pretty confident they weren't there before is because when you're out to sea, there are only two ways onto the ship. Oh, really? A helicopter or a C-2 Greyhound, which is a sister airplane to the one I worked on. Um, I'd actually spent a lot of time working on that airplane. And we took care of it when we were out to sea. So we would almost always see who was getting on and off the back of it. Right. And I never saw them get on or off before then. Um, two Air Force officers are going to stand out on an aircraft carrier. Yeah. You know, there's, despite the fact that there's almost 6,000 people on an aircraft carrier, wow. when you're out there long enough, you tend to still know who's who. Yeah, right. Of course you do. You may know the face. You may not necessarily know the name, but you know the people are there. So they weren't there. Um, they never came off the cod. Uh, pretty sure they came on board via helicopter. Um, it wasn't until much later when I finally connected with Gary Voorhees, who was on the Princeton, um, that we kind of made sense of the, the whole how did they get to the ship thing um, because he had some people come to his ship to take his classified stuff, pretty much the same data type of recordings that I had, um, and they flew out on a helicopter because that's all you can get on the Princeton is a helicopter. Right. Um, but the helicopter on a carrier lands and takes off so often. That you wouldn't notice it. Yeah, it's kind of hard to keep track of people getting on and off Mm -hmm. because sometimes the pilot switch out. So it's very easy to miss somebody coming on that way. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so when I finally got the confirmation that they they took stuff from him, it made a lot more sense um, to how they got there. Right. Um, So that's, for the most part, I never actually saw the Tic Tac object. Um, I kind of wish I did. <laughs> yeah, yeah but, but if you did, you probably would wish you hadn't. Yeah.
Both Gary and Patrick then went on to tell me about their personal thoughts and musings about what they experienced. I admit that I was a bit surprised, but at the same time not, if that makes any sense, about what their conclusions actually were. So let's continue with Gary's thoughts and conclusions, and then we'll hear Patrick's. So... Now, that's one of, one of the small pieces that kind of lends me to believe that um, it might have been our own tech, you know, because, all right, so follow me along my rabbit hole and down my rabbit hole where this is, this is the most logical explanation that I've come up with right. for exactly what these objects were. Now, I do believe that in Drake's equation – I believe that there, you know, it's it's very it's very impractical to believe that there has never been anybody more smart uh, or smarter than us mm. before us. <laughs> you know, I mean, there could have been civilizations that had already mm. had interspace travel well before we even existed. Yeah, absolutely. But I also believe that these, you know, that any of these species of aliens or whatever you want to call them probably don't have faster than light travel. Because, I mean, that level of engineering is still even beyond what we were seeing with these Tic Tacs. So to have faster than light travel is probably the goal of every species at some point or another. But I believe that they are just a multi-generational space travelers. Like, they, it takes them still, even at the tremendous speeds they can go, you know, if we even went to, to you know, Alpha Centauri mm-hmm. or, or, you know, any of these places where they're, you know, where a lot of people, claim that there's going to be civilizations you know it's going to take you know 10 20 generations of people traveling at those speeds to even get here right so if they had say they had visited our planets and they left saying hey we're going to come back you know they have every intention of coming back but that's you know 20 generations and you got to remember time is relative to the position in space you are right. so their 20 generations could be you know you know the earth could be supernova by the time they get back you know it, it takes 10 billion years for the supernova to start you know they could they could be just getting back saying oh man we missed them yeah <laughs> you know so or there's also the theory that time can fold in on itself well, time is completely relative to the gravitational position, yeah. which, you know, whatever, I mean, it's it's been proven that it can be affected by gravity yeah. and it can be affected by mass. So, and that's actually the basis of the fact that you can go back in time. Right. The The fact that I think that, yeah, I really do think that we, this planet's probably been visited at some point or another. Um, I think that if they did, they probably left monitoring systems. Mm. Mm. Now, what we think is underwater bases and alien spacecraft and stuff like that, it's a good possibility that if, if there, I mean, now this is only going down the lines that if there is aliens, mm-hmm. I have no proof. This is just my thought process. <laughs> I have, I have so many different lines of thought about, I mean, just knowing that this level of tech exists opens up too many lines of thought for me. So, yeah, it does. So I'm saying if there is aliens and they have visited and they did want to monitor this planet, well, what would we do right now? Anything we want to keep an eye on, what do we do? Put drones in the air. Hmm. We keep monitoring systems. We put cameras up. We, we do something. Well, if you're that advanced, you don't need all the cameras and stuff. You just do one drone 
it has you know every system every every sensor system on you know that they things we can't even imagine yeah you know they're probably you know one of their drones could probably monitor everything going on the earth at one time Mm. you know seismically you know you know basically general status of the earth itself right and you know so say one of these things does malfunction and crash like say in the 50s in a desert in the united states or in the 60s in the middle of uh you know the the tundra out in the middle of uh, russia right you know or in india or in any of these other places that have had these crashes and you know sightings where where they've seen ships crash Mm. so this is still a high level of tech even if it is a drone Mm. And who knows, they may even have biochemical tech, meaning that what's inside may look alive. Right. It could, it could be alive because they may have figured out that a, a you know, a live brain or a, a you know, reproduced, uh, you know, physical, you know, physical, you know, the physical synapses of our brain are way better than a computer. Mm-hmm. We can, we can extrapolate things that a computer can never even, con- you know, come up with it as a concept because of the way our brains work. We are the best computers on the planet. There's nothing better than our brains. Yeah. Even quantum computers don't even come close. The only difference is, is the quantum computer can be focused on one thing. The amount of information that our brains process in a day, even, even a dull brain, <laughs> suppresses i mean we're talking terabytes of information a second so i mean so i mean there's no more powerful computer on this planet than our brains so who says they don't have biotech Mm. based off of that same type of neuro neuro pathways you know to us it looks like something alive inside of a drone to them it's just an inert drone with no actual soul because they grew the damn thing (laughs) <laughs> that's actually well you know that's actually a very valid line of thought yeah absolutely all right so now say they did come here they left monitoring systems well all systems malfunction right so you're going to have crashes from time to time right but say they do have a level of tech where they can keep themselves completely go they can go come and go without ever us ever seeing them without ever knowing about that they're here mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden well, we get a hold of a little bit of their tech. Mm. You know, at first, we're not really know what to do with it, especially in the 50s and the 60s. Yeah. You know, but all of a sudden in 69, we're hitting the moon. Right. I mean, less than 10 years into a space program. <laughs> I mean, really going from V2 rockets to the moon in less than 10 years. Well, we went from computers one computer that took rooms and rooms and rooms to a little microchip and how long? Uh, less than 20 years. Yes, exactly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah it's a, the, the, the level of tech. And I think it's kind of uh, as our tech got more, you know, they'd get an idea from the tech and then yeah. they, obviously it would work. And then it would just get a little bit better, a little bit better. And then as our tech gets more wild, it's because they figured out more things with this other tech, right? You know, so all of us, all of a sudden, you now have you know thirty years of different generations of these these flying craft that mm-hmm. they've been trying to develop. Mm-hmm. You know, then now, now all of a sudden that that accounts for your triangle ones, that accounts for your round ones, that accounts for your orbs, that accounts for you know all of a sudden they decide that they're going to do proof of concept on a new gravitational system to see how well it goes up against what we are our best right now right you know they know right where our battle group is they know that we're not armed 
paper that we're doing that they all they're going to have is CADAM missiles, which are basically just fixed missiles that just look pretty. They don't leave. They can't be shot. You know, I think they might have some some rounds in their machine guns, but unless they're fired on, they can't fire back. Right. <laughs> so they 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 come in, they just float around, see what we're going to do, see what they see what we can do about it. And, you know, sudden seven days goes by and then finally they say, okay, well, we got to go intercept these things, see what's going on, finally intercept them. And then we can't do anything. Mm. Like, literally, we, we can't, we can't even keep up with them to shoot them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, so all of a sudden proof of concept done. Right. Your systems work great. Let's get back to the hangar. <laughs> exactly. And I spoke with Patrick Hughes the other day. Yeah. And he expressed the same ideas, in different words, of course. He felt that it was likely our technology because, like, at the time that you guys had these experiences, you guys were the best technology there was in the world. Yes. And then along, oh, I don't know how many years later, the, the, the other video of the gimbal, is it the gimbal video? Yeah, that was in 2015, I think, off the coast of, well, Florida. Yeah. That was, that was another exercise, and along came more sightings. Yep, another situation where they'd know exactly where we were, exactly, exactly what we were doing, that we would have training missiles, that we wouldn't be at. Uh, exactly. You know. And that would explain why the command of your ship, of the exercise, in fact, wasn't overly concerned about what was going on because… They may have been told not to be. Yeah, yeah, Exactly. Exactly. And then they may have been, you know, they may have been just waiting for the go-ahead to go ahead and do the interrogation. Right. You know, and then, you know, I mean, a lot of things just don't make a lot of sense about this whole thing. There were very few people that had to sign non-disclosures. Yeah. And it was only people that, it was only people that had some real up and close information and person, and, and, you know, like the people off the, uh, like, uh, like, uh, uh, Patrick Hughes, you know, he's 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 a good buddy of mine, and you know, he's he's told me about you know some of the some of the more you know a lot of the details, you know, even stuff that he can't talk about, you know, because we can talk to each other about classified stuff. But yes, of course, you know, and and believe me, you guys aren't missing out on the classified stuff. A lot of it's just boring, you know, monotonous. Okay, well, you know, we had the R patch and and we did the you know da 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 yeah. da. You know, just going over the things that we did. It's it's all it's all just the nuts and bolts stuff. It's, I mean, some, some of the people out there are really going to want to know that stuff. Yeah. But when it comes down to it, it's still classified. Right. Absolutely. You know, and it doesn't surprise me. They had somebody on the helicopter to get the data because if you, if you were doing, trying to do proof of concept, of course, you're going to go get the data so that you can analyze it. And as soon as possible. Yeah. Yep. You're gonna go get the. You're gonna go get all the data. Yeah. You're bring it in, and you're gonna you're gonna put it versus what you get off of what you what you're getting off of your craft that you're trying to do proof of concept with. Yeah. All right. So the craft saw this. This is what they saw. So where can we make it better? Right. That absolutely makes sense to me, actually, from a layperson's point of view. And now the only reason I really kind of ended up going down that path is just because you know it, it being. Not a not a UFOologist or a, you know somebody that really studies it. Kind of kind of like uh, more people just interested. You know, I was always an X Files fan, but not a you know. But I wasn't you know I wasn't running around you know staring at the sky every night. <laughs> you know, <laughs> hoping that I get abducted. You know, I'm not you know I'm not yeah you know, I'm, not, I'm not I was never one of the people like that. Like I said, I've always been a skeptical believer of just about everything. And 
it, it did excite me that, that all this stuff that was happening, but I guess it was mostly just in a, in, in more of a scientific way. Cause it just kind of like, it opened my eyes to what's possible. I absolutely understand that. And, you know, so I got very excited about that. I didn't even care where it was from. I, that, I was just, I was like, Oh my God, you know, gravitational systems for propulsion exist you know i was yeah. like holy shit because that was the only the way i could explain the way that they moved right yeah because they had to have been working outside of gravity yeah well the turns they made the g-forces would have splattered the pilots against the wall of the ship wouldn't it if anybody was piloting them yeah yeah they they uh, a human body wouldn't be able to take that kind of force unless they were being protected by something. Yeah, that's what I thought. Now, you know, that could be like the gravitational inertia, you know. So if, they, if they're not being affected by gravity on the inside of the container, then there is no inertia. Right. So you could so you could take a right at turn. You could do anything. Right. And you're not going to you're not going to feel it. <laughs> right. So that's that's why it was so amazing to me. And that's why. If it doesn't have gravitational systems and it was using some other type of propulsion, that's why I think that it would have to be some type of drone. Right. So that's, you know, it's either a more advanced, a very advanced drone technology that we've been working on for probably centuries. But, you know, if we did recover a craft in, in, over in Roswell, mm -hmm. then, you know, it would explain, you know, all the, you know, different texts that we've come out i mean in 2000 just actually just in 2000 would you have ever thought you could do what you can do with an iphone no no exactly i mean remember remember when the razor phones were like whew, uh, you know i got me in my titanium razor phone you know, my flip phone oh look at this it's so bad look yeah, check out. I can do. I can do emoticons on this, and it just had automatic. You know, you know, smiley faces. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were the hottest toys. Yep, I had mine flipped up, oh, and and that was really big then. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Yes, but you're right. You know, I mean, so our technology just keeps going spiraling just faster and faster, and I truly believe that once the primary consumers which are the baby boomers right now mm -hmm. when the baby boomers have passed on and it's now the people that are in their thirties and forties are the primary consumers mm -hmm. that those people can consume technology at a far faster rate. Yes, absolutely. So once the commercial market can consume it at that fast rate, I think you're going to see a major boom in tech. And you're going to start seeing what's actually out there. I mean, some of this foldable technology and bio-LEDs, which are now called OLEDs or organic LEDs, I, I've seen that tech 20 years ago. Wow. You know, and it wasn't anything fancy or anything like that. But, I mean, you know, I'd worked in the in an industry that where, you know, you hear mm. things about stuff that's being developed. Right. You know, I, never, I never touched it or saw it or, you know, put my hands on it. But it's just like... You know, you know, you hear about them working on a bending a screen that bends, and it's like, well, why the hell would you want to bend a screen? And then you know, you see something like, uh, you know, a Minority Report. It's like, hmm, now I see. Now I now I want the bendy screen. <laughs> you know, so and then now they have it. It's out. <laughs> you know, I can see 
I can see that this is from your technical perspective more than a personal perspective. It's made you think about a whole pile of different possibilities. On a personal level, how has this affected your life? Um, see, it's, it's hard to say how this just was one event really affected my life. Cause this, this one event was just like the last thing that happened to me in the military. Right. And then, and then I started my civilian life. You know, I worked as an engineer in San Diego and then I moved over to, to Florida and I kind of moved around a little bit in between, but it, it's always kept me, uh, you know, in my private work always thinking you know Mm. i always have these equations running in my head how it's possible Mm. you know it's like you know things like that and you know uh stuff that i've seen with uh you know high level acoustic testing that they do uh you know being able to displace matter with just using acoustics right you know uh you know you know things 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 of that nature these all can be these all can provide propulsion weaponry you know stuff like that all high level physics that i try to i always i think it just opened my mind more than it was you know it was uh you know for a long time you got to remember who the hell is going to believe you exactly i mean so i mean generally unless i had a couple of pints with you for and you were a good you're a good you know a good friend i may not even even tell you the story (laughs) so Yeah, and that would be fair call on your part because, I mean, there's been a culture that's been deliberately cultivated where people who share their experiences, whether they're in the military, well, in the military, I'm leading you, which actually says something big that you didn't have to sign anything. And nobody talked about it for a long, long time. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's kind of, and even, even now that the Navy came out and it was such big news that basically just proved our credibility. Yeah. It it still doesn't really feel like a lot, it's not really a big deal. Right. Like people are just, I think people are just so numb from everything. There's just so many, so many other horrible things going on. There's, you know, people are focused on all the bad stuff that are happening. And it's like, really people? Yeah. Believe me, it's, it's only, it's still the best time of human history. <laughs> you know, there's still bad things are going to go on. We have, you know, what, so it, how many billions of people on this planet with 13 billion people? Out of that 13 billion people, there's going to be a lot of bad apples. Yeah, there are. <laughs> and when you get all these people living in tight quarters and the overpopulated classrooms and just when with overpopulation, you're just going to get a lot of mental illness. Yeah, you are. Yeah. Humans are never meant to be crowded. They're not creatures that are designed to be living in crowded spaces. They're designed to be social, but... They're not necessarily need to be crammed into, you know, ghettos and, you know, bad neighborhoods. Right. You know, when, you know, when a human feels hopeless, well, that's just it. Right, right. They're hopeless. So that's one thing that I think that definitely has probably changed about me is that even though I'm, I stay, I remain pessimistic and a bit of a skeptic on a lot of things, Mm. but I'm never going to, unless you come off completely, just absolutely nut job because you've, everybody's run into people like that and it's like they they're so passionate and so they want you to believe them so badly that it's very hard to even believe them Mm. you know and you know and it's it's just like that's probably why a lot of us come across as more 
you know, like, all right, well, these guys barely even believe themselves. So, <laughs> you know, the things that happen, you know, they're just, they were, they were so amazing at the time. And yet it was so downplayed that you just kind of like, all right, well, you know, where, where am I going to go to work when I get out? Um, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. If they had made a big deal out of it, it might have been a different situation. I actually had an interview with a chap. Oh, I don't know if you've heard of this case. There were two US Air Force bases in the UK. One was called Bent Waters, the other was called Woodbridge. I've heard of the Bentwater one. I interviewed a chap who was a member of the security police there, and he had top secret clearance. He was involved in that incident, but he had never spoken public before. He spoke to me about it, and I felt really, really, oh, honestly, my heart just ached for this poor chap. He's got physical illnesses he's dealing with from exposure to whatever it was he was exposed to at that incident. That's directly attributable. Like, he's developed thyroid cancers to a degree that the doctors told him that they only only ever see in people that have been that have been exposed to massive amounts of radiation. Mm-hmm. He was only nineteen, so he's a kid, you know. Yeah. And they had their debriefing. They were basically told they had to keep their mouth shut. There was no counselling. Nobody they could talk to about what they'd experienced. Nothing, you know. Yeah, and and back then they barely even knew about a lot of the different radiations or even how to you know, block them, you know I mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Back back then, you know, lead jacket, that's it. <laughs> anyway, that's kind of way off the track, but I was just interested in comparing how you've dealt with this compared to how he dealt with it. I, I deal with it very pragmatically. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I just don't, um, I, I don't really care if people believe me or not. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's just, it is, it is what it is. Either you, you, you want to hear the story, you want to know, you want to know what we know, we'll tell you. We, we're, and we've actually gotten together because there's, there's stuff that we've heard hearsay from other people and stuff that to people that we do trust, but we can't, we don't know, we can't validate it because we don't have contact with those people. Anymore. Right. You know, so we don't talk about it. We let it for if we do get a hold of those people, like uh, you know, I was originally I talked about the the, the right. USOs where you know it was being tracked underwater because it was secondhand knowledge that I got from somebody else, and I made sure that it was very clear in most of my interviews that this is coming from another person. Mm. This is not firsthand knowledge, you know, because I stayed mostly over in where the sonar systems were when whenever I was kind of being a fly on the wall when these things were going on. Right. You know, so anytime they were doing the tracks and there was too many important people on, on deck, you know, <laughs> I'd be, I'd just kind of slink over to the, con, you, know, you know, to an area where they can't quite, you know, nobody, nobody bothers to go to sonar ever. <laughs> so, and it's just a little, little space right in combat. So, you know, you can kind of hide over there because there's enough equipment to hide behind. <laughs> I've just got one final question for you, Gary, and that is, why do you feel that your government has finally come out and acknowledged that, yes, these things are real, but we don't know what they are? Why do you think they've come out and said that now? Well, I guess, uh, you know, hide in plain sight. The easiest way to deal with something is just to admit that it's real and move on and then everybody's like because i mean everybody in the back of their mind you know yeah of course we think it's real yeah you know and then all of a sudden they come out and say it's and it's not that big of a deal anymore yeah yeah. we've been watching x-files and movies and you know where the you know the the day the earth stood still for what how many freaking 
decades. <laughs> yeah. We just like just like with the mass violence, we're all just numb to it at this point. That's true. That's very true. People become very numb to it, and that's quite sad, actually. Yeah, the desensitization of the mass population. <laughs> it's going to be interesting to see what happens next. What else your government is going to? Well, you got to remember, there's been there's been a lot of times in the in the past history that Congress has been addressed by serious situations like this. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know they've even had congressional hearings throughout the decades. They've had things that were even further along than we are now, and nothing ever happened from them so you know i would love to see disclosure full disclosure but i don't think it's going to come from the states oh no i don't think it's going to come from the states either to be perfectly honest i think it's gonna i think a country like iran or a country like north korea or a country that just basically just doesn't give a shit yeah (laughs) yeah they're gonna be the ones that are gonna like parade a a ufo across a you know (laughs) Yeah, they were like, look what we got, you know? Yeah, so. Yeah, or the beings that actually operate the UFOs is more to the point. Yeah. Because I noticed that whilst they validated that they were real, they didn't say there's no mention of who operates them or who makes them. And Yeah, they basically, that's the whole point. They're just like, they're saying they're unknown. We have no idea who they are. Yeah, and yeah. They wouldn't, you know, they're not going to come out and say, yeah, we think they're aliens or yeah, we think it's another country with alien technology, you know, or they're not going to say, yeah, that's our reverse, techno- you know, reverse engineered technology that we've been taking it with for 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, I mean. You can't really expect them to do that. And the whole new procedures for the Navy for reporting these things, it's basically the same procedure, but now public. (laughs) Right, right. So they're not going to get laughed at anymore, although they probably still will. And I think the other other, uh, point to to changing the name from UFO to, uh, what is it that they changed it to? UAP. UAP is so that the all of the people doing the Freedom of Information Acts have to <laughs> resubmit everything to it with a different name on it. Yeah, there's probably that aspect to it. I agree. Yeah, so basically, yeah, so there, there's, don't ever think that the government's not being shady. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They have to, but there has to be a level of shadiness to protect secrecy. And as much as we all want to know what they are, where they're coming from, if it sacrifices any type of safety of the United States or even anybody, I am not for disclosure. Mm-hmm. I am for disclosure under the situation that it's not going to cause mass panic, it's not going to cause anything, and I don't think we as a people are ready for disclosure Mm. well you know it might actually be taken out of the government's hands they might not actually have any say in the matter well that's if they're not in contact with them yeah exactly (laughs) you know because you know say 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 if they uh say if my theory about them visiting but leaving and coming back you know and not having faster than light travel you may be damn right about that it could be any day now they're just like hey yeah we're back so how have you guys been doing <laughs> yeah yeah i've noticed over the past two years that your government in particular all the world governments but your government in particular has been drip feeding people little bits of information little bits of information and then finally this so yeah i've noticed particularly over the past two years that this has been occurring 
But anyway, Gary, I know it's late there, and I'm really grateful for the time you spent with me today, and I've really enjoyed listening to you. I think you guys are really awesome coming forward and sharing this with the world. And uh, and I'm I'm sure you sure you you'd already found me on uh, uh, what is it uh, Twitter and and uh, and Messenger. Mm. Uh, anybody that has questions, especially uh, prior military guys, I definitely encourage them to come out and come forward with anything that they have. Um, we actually have uh, nonprofit started to you know maybe try 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 to fund situations where we can you know get these guys together to talk about their situations and and we're going to be doing expeditions off the coast of uh, san diego near san clemente where we actually had the sightings here hopefully uh, next couple of, i think in the next year right now that they're looking at doing it but we're going to get out there we're going to basically look to you know see if there's anything special about that area you know how awesome yeah oh that's awesome that you're all doing that it's like a support network do you want to give out your Twitter and your Facebook? Yeah, um, you can you, you can you can link that. I'll, and then it's uh, I think it's at Gary Voorhees for Twitter. And then you you already have my uh, you already have my Facebook. And then uh, you know I encourage anybody that has any questions they can they can I'm I'm available. But it's just uh, remember, I get it. I got your. You know, I will get, you know, as you send the responses, I can get to them as I can get to them. So it could be a couple of weeks up to a month or so before I get back to some people. But but I will always eventually give some type of response, you know, so. And is there a website for this group that's been put together? I think right now it's still in the process of being built uh, for the website itself. Okay. Now, now I won't I won't accept anybody's friend requests. But I do open up my messenger for anybody. So if you send me a, a private message on messenger, then I get them. And then after there's like five or six of them in there, I usually will start answering them. I usually at least try to check it at once a week. Um, but like I said, my primary, my primary duties in this life is, you know, making my wife happy and my daughter, and my daughter, uh, you know, and spending time with my daughter. So it, it's, yeah, everything else is second. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm 100% behind that. Your family is number one priority and always should be. Anyway, Gary, thank you very much for your time. I've enjoyed talking with you immensely. All right, no problem. Have a good one. Thanks so much for your time. All right, no problem. You have a wonderful night and God bless you and your family. Uh but we've got, I mean, we've got many theories. I'm not, I'm, there, there's two basically outcomes for what it is. It's something built on this earth by somebody on this earth or it's something from outer space. Mm, right. Just because of what I know and what I dealt with in my military career and my, some of my civilian jobs that I've had after that, I tend to believe it's something from this earth. Oh, really? Interesting. Um, some people actually argue with me about, but at the same time, I am 100% open to it being not from here. Right. And it would be equally satisfying for that to be the outcome. Right. It's just with my experiences, 
you know, I know there's stuff that not everybody knows about that exists. So I understand the possibility mm. that they could have something like this that doesn't, that, you know, doesn't exist because they don't want to tell us about it. Well, of course, like the stealth fighter is a perfect example of that, isn't it? Yes, exactly. How long did they have the stealth before it went public? Exactly. And that's so, just simply why I tend to lean that way. Yeah. But I'm equally open to it being you know, E.T. from Planet You-Know-What. Right. And, of course, it could always be back-engine technology as well because I understood it was doing, like, when it descended into the ocean and at one part it was doing 24,000 miles per hour. Yeah, that is... With no sonic booms. Yeah. Um, that was based on... That, that calculation, so to speak, was came from Kevin Day. Yeah. It was based on... Um, what they saw on the Princeton's radar. Right. How fast it moved. So, you know, that's a fairly confident, a fairly accurate number, but it could be different. Right. Um, but yeah, it went from, you know, point A to point B and that quick. Yeah, very quickly. It also went from where it was being chased by Commander Fravor's airplane back to Commander Fravor's cap point. Uh, a good distance away, almost instantaneously. Could you please explain what a cap point is for those of us who aren't military and don't understand the lingo? Uh, it's, it's basically a, a point in the sky that they use as a rendezvous point. It's called a uh, oh, okay. combat air patrol point. It's basically a point in space where that's where they start. Right, got you. So. If they go do something, they go back to that point before they do something else. Um, it's not a classified latitude and longitude. It's just not publicized. Of course. So nobody would have known where their, their, their cap point was. Right. So how does an object get from where they were with Commander Fravor and, and his aircraft back to that point that quickly and without having any way to know where that point was? Right. Good point. So there's a lot of unknowns to the whole story that we still don't know. Mm, mm. And I guess that brings in the men coming to collect the stuff. And how would they have known to begin with? Um, I mean, the only reason I can think they may have had a heads up is the fact that the Princeton had been dealing with the object for almost, you know, three, four days at that point. Oh, that's true. Um, and we were... I mean, give or take 90 miles from San Diego. Um, so somebody could easily have been told that early that morning and make it out to the ship by the time, you know, lunchtime hit. Right. Or somebody else knew what was going on and they planned to come out at that point. Right. You know, there's, there's multiple outcomes for that. Yeah, yeah, obviously, yeah. But in the last couple of days, I've actually come to the realization of something when we were out in 2004, the, the Nimitz strike group was basically the, the top of the line when it came to the Navy at that point. Right. We had some of the newest airplanes, the newest software, newer capabilities, and it was basically the first time all that stuff had been deployed together. Um, and we were testing a lot of it and working a lot of it. So at that point... We were the best the Navy had to offer. Right. 2015 comes along and the gimbal incident 
over off of Florida. Mm. That carrier strike group was the top of the line. And it's a, there was no point between 2004 and 2015 where there was such a drastic change in capabilities of the battle group. Right. So it's almost like they tested us in 2003 when we got really good at stuff. Or sorry, 2004. Right. When we got really good at stuff. You know, they know our capabilities, and all of a sudden we push out in 2015 a bunch of new stuff, and here come objects again. Oh, that's a very valid observation, actually. It's, and you know, I could just be reaching with that observation, but. Well, it's as valid as anything, isn't it? Yeah. But it's just an interesting, it's a very interesting way to look at it. Mm. If it's us, that's somebody knowing that that battle group was now top of the line and says, hey, let's go test against them again. Right. If it's not our technology and it's something off this planet, it then becomes that much, it almost becomes a little worrying. Mm -hmm. One, how do they know that's the best we have to offer at that time? Right. And why are they only worried about the best we have to offer? Mm. Why are they not just bothering everybody at the same time? That's a, yeah. a very interesting observation. So what, is you, so what is your feeling about your military coming out in the past couple of weeks saying, yes, these videos are real, yes, UFOs exist? I mean, to a point, the, the videos, however they got released, got released. Mm. there's too much evidence to support those videos that they are in fact real that you can't deny it. Yeah. And when you add in all the other stuff that's come out in regards to it, it's very hard to hide the fact that it's not an airplane. It's not something we know. Right. And they're not saying it's a UFO. They're saying it's, an unidentified aerial phenomenon. Yes, that's what they call them these days, yes. Yeah. They're saying it is something. We're telling you it's something. We agree it's something. Yeah. But that's as far as we're going to go. Yeah. It's good that they're admitting it. Albeit a bit late, eh? Well, yeah. Um, and who knows? They could have a reason for doing it. They could not have a reason for doing it. You never know with a government. That's true. Um, but one of the reasons it's encouraging that they released it is back in 2004, one of Kevin Day's major concerns was the safety of the air crew, the pilots flying in the airplanes, with something like that flying around. Yeah, that's, that's a valid concern. And that was, his, that was actually his reasoning for getting Commander Fravor to break off their mission to go look at that object, right. was the fact that safety of flight issue. Um, by the Navy admitting that that stuff was out there, it's actually a sign of them, in my opinion, admitting it to admitting to it more for the protection of its pilots. Mm. Hey, this stuff is actually out there, and we're not just ignoring it. Mm. What about the fact that they're actually allowing personnel to report sightings now rather than discouraging it? Is that just window dressing as well? <laughs> 
officially you've always been able to report something like that. Right. But there's not, just as I explained what the joke's about, you know, this incident in 2004, you know, nobody was going to take you seriously. Yeah, yeah. And when you're on an aircraft carrier in the middle of, say, the Pacific Ocean, where there's no land for hundreds of miles, yeah. you're, the, the sky gets so clear, mm-hmm. you can see everything. Wow. Um, so it's not unheard of for people to see things. Right. You know, I can't tell you what it is. I can tell you probably something's a satellite just because you can kind of tell a pattern. Yeah. But people see things that you don't normally see. So the possibility is that people are seeing things. How much have people seen, but they never reported it because you don't want to get laughed at by, by everybody you work with. Right. And you also don't want to risk any chances of, of losing promotion. And Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's the guy who saw a UFO. (laughs) Forget about it. Yeah. You know, but now you have the Navy admitting that things exist, whatever they think it is. You have highly experienced and highly senior military officers going public with it, mainly Commander Fravor. You have senators and people who are starting to get interested in it. You have, you know, the handful of us who have come public about this incident. And, and none of us have been laughed at. Nobody's been arrested, thrown in a padded room. <laughs> you know, sooner or later, people are going to start understanding that nobody's going to come after you if you say anything. Right. Nobody's going to laugh at you, you know, if you see something. Yeah. And maybe things will start coming out of this and we'll see more patterns and more experiences. Um, so I think it's a positive thing that they did it. Well, yes, it's about time. I actually did an interview with a chap. His episode was the first of the seasons. He was based in the UK with the Air Force during the Rendlesham Forest Affair. I don't know if you've heard of that. You possibly haven't. I think I've heard the name, but I'm not. I'm not. I was never super into to like UFOs before this. Right. So there's a lot of stories that I'm just. I, I mean, I've heard briefly, but I'm not really familiar. Well, it's a really, it's a really world famous episode like yours is now, but it was based between two Air Force bases in England. One was called Woodbridge and the other Bent Waters. And he was 19 years old at the time. And in the security police, um, MPs, whatever they call them, that was his job. And he had this experience then and he had never spoken of it publicly until he spoke to me about it. It affected his whole life. He's in his 50s now and he's struggling with health issues directly related to his UFO experience. He's carried this his entire life and still has the effects of it affecting him now. I just felt so bad for him because there was no counselling given to the men who... And and this was a UFO that actually landed on the ground. It was solely witnessed on the ground by military personnel. And these guys were given no counselling. They were given no support. They were just told, basically, shut your mouths. Do not to discuss this. Yes, that's how it works, unfortunately. Yeah. And so he's got PTSD from it. And he has multiple health issues directly attributable to the radiation from the ship Having said that, has this affected your life in any way? Um, me personally, no. Um, I know it's affected Kevin Day. Right. Um, he he's spoken quite publicly about some of the stuff that it's affected with him. Right. Uh, I know Gary Voorhees, because um, the the guys on the Princeton, aside from tracking it on the radar, 
they actually saw the objects with their own eyes. Uh, right. um, ship has a giant, they call them big eyes, and they're a really big set of binoculars. And quite a few of them were able to go out if you had, you know, access to those binoculars to see them. And I know Kevin Day saw them, Gary Voorhees saw them. Um, Jason Turner saw everything through the video. Um, so I, 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 it never affected me. Right. But I believe, like Kevin Day, I believe him wholeheartedly when he says it's affected him. Yeah. So, but I know stuff that's affected me that hasn't affected other people who were there. So. Yeah, exactly. It's individual to the person. I understand that. But for those like Kevin who had that experience, it would alter your paradigms on how you perceive reality to be. Yes. Well, I'm I'm glad that you've had no effects from it because I guess you were a step removed from the actual event. So that was probably a bit of a blessing in some respects, but enough for you to see the effects of this on others. That's really interesting. Is there anything that you personally would take away from this experience that's given you pause for thought or anything like that? Um, I mean, I, I, I got back into this whole subject actually by accident. I ran across Dave Beatty's video on YouTube, and I, I just had sent him an email saying there's some parts of the story that you didn't know. Whoa. And then Dave convinced me, you know, to interview and I ended up going to UFO Megacon in Laughlin, Nevada, um, got in touch with Gary and Kevin and Jason and a few other people and filled in so many blanks to the story I knew. Right. And it's, it, I guess it really, it, it has changed my perception a little just because of I, I've met a whole bunch of new people. Right. Um, I'd say 75% of them have been genuine in, in their beliefs and what they've told me, and I have no reason to doubt them. Right. I've talked to a few people who I think are absolutely bonkers. Um, but I, I, it's just a, a whole – it's a whole world of stuff I didn't think about. Hmm a whole world of possibilities with this event I hadn't thought about, you know. Right. If it's our stuff, there's a whole bunch of new physics that have been developed that the world doesn't know about. You know, that, and then where did they get these physics from? Yeah, exactly. There's, there's so much of our culture that is based off of what we know now that could drastically change if this is in fact ours. True. And if it's not ours and it's something from outer space, it's equally going to change so much of what we know. Right, absolutely. I think that's one of the things that scares a lot of people. It's not necessarily that there are aliens out there. It's what's going to change because we now know for a fact that there are aliens out there. Right. You know, there's some people who will be perfectly acceptable to it. There are going to be some crazy wackos who, you know, aliens are going to burn down our planet. We can't let them here. Yeah, yeah. You know. There's going to be some people who just don't care. You know, you're going to get a whole wide range of reactions to it. Um, and personally, if they told me tomorrow that aliens were real, I'm not sure how I'm going to react. Yeah. You know, um, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Contact. With Jodie Foster. Yeah. Where she, um, one of the lines in the movie, and I, I know it comes from the guy who wrote it. Um, 
But if we're alone in the galaxy, it's an awful waste of space. You know, I firmly believe somewhere out there, there is something else. Mm. Uh, I don't know what it is or if it's somebody or if it's intelligent, but there's other stuff out there that we just don't know about yet. Right. So I don't, but even then I don't know how to react if they told me tomorrow that, you know, ET is landing on the airplane and we're going to go say hi to him. Well, I think you're probably a bit more prepared than the average person, considering what you've been through. So you've probably got a bit of a head start there anyway. <laughs> yes. Did you know that there was a poll done recently and over 67, 68% of Americans believe in the existence of extraterrestrial beings and life off this planet? I did not know that. That's actually much higher than I expected. Yeah, it used to be like 30% maybe 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's quite a large percentage of people who actually believe. And what you said before was right. And I actually said to my listeners in the beginning of an episode that aired some weeks back, if we're the only intelligent species in these multi-universes, what does that mean for us? Exactly. And if we're not, what also does that mean for us as humanity? Exactly. So much to think about. Lots of questions, eh? Yes. So thank you very much, Patrick, for taking the time to share your part of the experience with me and my listeners. That's really awesome. No problem. In these episodes, we've covered the USS Navy, Tic Tac, UAP, UFO, AVV, whatever term you wish to use for these sightings. The episode that made headlines around the world and to this date remains unexplained. Personally for me, this raises more questions than anything else and leads me off into the world of government conspiracies and cover-ups, shadow governments and more. An area I've not gone into in this program or indeed in this podcast. But if enough of you are interested, then flick me an email at shadowlands at yahoo.com and I'll do an episode on government conspiracies and shadow governments for you. I found Gary and Patrick both most interesting to listen to. What impressed me about about both of these gentlemen was the fact that they simply don't care whether people believe them or not. They saw what they saw, experienced what they experienced, and now that the US forces have come out and said that these objects are real, as Gary said, this makes them the most credible witnesses in the world. Can't beat that. I want to end these episodes with this quote from the short documentary The Nimitz Experience by David Beatty, as I feel the words are most appropriate. The answers seem to elude everyone, like reflections on a wave, yet they are out there.
our musical score today is called Private Reflection by Kevin MacLeod, licensed under Creative Commons. For more information, check out this episode's page on the podcast website at www.walkingtheshadowlands.com. If you have any suggestions for topics you might like me to cover in upcoming episodes, then please don't hesitate to contact me. Or if any of you have any questions or any comments that you'd like to make or experiences that you might like to share privately or with myself and my audience, then just email me at shadowlands at yahoo.com. If you enjoyed this episode, then please leave a positive rating and don't be shy to leave a written review on your chosen podcasting platform. Who knows? You may hear your review read out at the end of one of these podcasts. And of course, so you don't miss out on any episode, make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast is available on all free podcasting platforms and from iHeartRadio as well. If you don't have a smartphone, then you can listen to the episodes from the podcast website. For those hearing impaired, there's a full written transcript of each episode on the website, so you don't miss out at all. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your workmates about us, about our show. Encourage them to listen and to subscribe also, the more the merrier. And take the time to check out our Facebook page, Walking the Shadowlands, our Instagram feed of the same name, and our Twitter feed at Shadowlands10. Like and follow for hints on our upcoming episodes. Thank you so much for listening. Tonight, today, wherever you are in this beautiful world of ours, we'll see you this time next week. Thanks for listening. 